AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon as we're joined by Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics as we'll be chatting about some of the stories that they've been working on over at the Reformer. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about uh, PFAS chemicals in drinking water in 12 Minnesota cities. As the Minnesota Department of Health has identified 12 cities and two mobile home parks where at least a portion of the drinking water is estimated to exceed the EPA's new proposed limits on PFAS chemicals. Those are those uh, forever chemicals, in case you forgot. Uh, a little more background on those. 3M dumped those chemicals into Washington County landfills for years, polluting about 200 square miles of groundwater and four aquifers that provide drinking water to thousands of East Metro residents. That led to the Minnesota legislature this past year uh, putting through a bill that includes a ban on those forever PFAS chemicals. But these new EPA standards, uh, as I mentioned, uh, could impact 12 cities and those two mobile home parks. So, Patrick, what exactly are these cities going to need to do to meet these EPA requirements that are now in place to uh, get in line with having uh, good drinking water? It seems that they're going to need to upgrade uh, their uh, drinking water systems um, to deal with these uh, the new EPA standards uh, that are being considered. They're not final yet. Um, but certainly it looks like we're, we're going down the road to a pretty strict regulation of um, some of these uh, six types of chemicals um, of the so-called PFAS, uh, and, and the, the regulation would uh, put the limit at four parts per trillion, which is essentially the lowest level at which they can be detected. So um, what I think how we should read that is that the EPA doesn't consider any any level of PFAS to be safe, and the, the reason is because it's uh, the the history of uh, toxicity um, in the uh, for um, in both animals and humans, um, and the fact that these, as we call them, forever chemicals, they tend to just build up um, in the body um, and they don't break down. So uh, this is going to require a significant cost. And it looks like it's going to be over and above the 3M settlement with the state uh, that was uh, penned in 2018. That was $850 million. But I think the total cost of this cleanup um, is going to be higher. And, uh, and of course, this could be just the start. Uh, we could see other um, municipalities and, and water systems uh, having to deal with this later. Well, let's talk about that cost right now, because as you mentioned, this is going to be very expensive for uh, many of these cities to upgrade their water systems. And as you also mentioned, that 3M lawsuit won't necessarily cover all of the costs. So that leads to the big, the big question is, who exactly is going to pay for this? Is this largely going to be up to the local cities, or could they get assistance from the state or even 3M? Uh, what have you been hearing about in terms of uh, who could end up paying for these uh, very large costs that these cities could incur? Well, that's the big question, and I, and I think that these municipalities uh, would uh, certainly have a good argument to make that this is not their responsibility. Um, it's not like they were um, allowing this kind of dumping um, and that there ought to be some kind of uh, some state assistance here. But, uh, of course, the other player here is 3M. Um, they invented many of these compounds, manufactured them, and, and as you said, uh, dumped them unsafely. 
Um, and I mean, even recently, the the 3M um, has self-reported uh, compliance problems uh, with the release of the the chemicals. Um, and the the attorney general at the time, uh, Lori Swanson, uh, was suing 3M. Um, and wound up settling for $850 million. But it appears that the the cleanup, um, the Department of Health estimates it'll cost 150 to $200 million to provide drinking water um, that meets EPA standards outside of that two, 2018 settlement area. So um, that's significant. Um, and, uh, you know, where is that money going to come from? And... Uh, I think it's unclear at this point um, how um, we can get after 3M again after the state has already made this settlement. So that's a, a question for another day, but an important one. Uh, now, if we, as we take a look at these 12 municipalities and two mobile home parks that are impacted right now, what guidance are they receiving right now until, well, they get these uh, upgrades at their water treatment facilities are are they being recommended to have their residents buy bottled water or doing anything else or not drinking tap water? I'm curious about that aspect, too, because if you're a resident of one of those 12 cities, that would be a pretty alarming to get this guidance from the EPA, basically saying, uh, we have forever chemicals in your water right now. Yeah, I mean, the, it, I think it depends on where you live and the the proximity you live to uh, the dumping grounds of the chemicals. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that these chemicals are everywhere, all over the globe. They're in basically every every living thing. Um, and so it's not as if only these 12 uh, people who live in these 12 communities are, are going to suffer from forever chemicals. Um, on the other hand, I don't want to minimize... Um, the risk here, uh, there certainly have, it appears to be human health effects. And so, you know, certain bottled water, uh, there's certainly in-home systems um, that uh, people can avail themselves. And people have been doing in the East Metro for, for a long time um, until these communities uh, get this figured out on a, on a global level. You can read more about that great reporting over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. And by the way, you can take a look at those 12 cities and two mobile harm parks that were uh, included uh, in this, uh, that were included in terms of having uh, too much of these PFAS chemicals in their water. Find that over at minnesotareformer.com. I want to move on to another story now that has to do with Minnesota and Wisconsin because, well, normally we think of them, at least in the sports realm, as being border rivals. But as state governments, Minnesota and Wisconsin do sometimes work together, and we have a recent example of this happening from yesterday where both Governor uh, Tim Walls from Minnesota and Tony Evers from Wisconsin said they will be using federal funds from the infrastructure bill to rebuild a bridge the John A. Blatnick Bridge between Duluth, Minnesota, and Superior, Wisconsin. So let's talk about the significance of this bridge because uh, this is a very significant uh, bridge that would be used between residents of both Minnesota and Wisconsin, correct? Yeah, that's uh, 33,000 cars per day, according to the governor's office, um, and nearly 265,000 trucks, billions of dollars, um, um, and uh, connecting trade uh, between these two states, as well as Canada and 
I think, uh, 40-something, 42 states. Um, it's uh, really an important bridge uh, for the port, and it's one of the most important ports, uh, inland ports uh, in the nation. So it's it's extremely um, high-value bridge, needs to be rebuilt, and the two governors are, are together going to ask the federal government for a billion dollars to help do it. Uh, both the state governments have um, have pledged four hundred million each, um, and so it's going to be a joint project. Um, going to take a while, um, but this seems like um, uh, an important project to come out of the uh, the Biden infrastructure law. I'm curious about this too, because as I mentioned, Minnesota and Wisconsin have worked together in the past. How exactly are they sharing costs on this too? Because as I understand it, there is going to be some state funds going to this project as well. Yeah, so they've each pledged $400 million. Um, I, I, uh, I would hope that future governors and legislatures, uh, would abide by that pledge. Um, I think there would be, uh, bipartisan support for this kind of a, a project because it is so important, um, for, uh, for trade. And, and I think you can get some Republican buy-in there. And then, of course, uh, Democrats, uh, love to build things. So, uh, no problem there, but it's definitely a joint project, and um, I think it's good that you have these two Democratic governors working with the Democratic administration. It seems more likely to make it happen. And as we mentioned, this did come from that federal infrastructure bill, which was largely uh, passed by the Democratic-controlled Congress at the time. So I, I do wonder if uh, Pete Stauber, the Republican representative from Minnesota's 8th District, will be taking credit for this project since it wouldn't be the first time that he's well, taken credit for some federal funding that he ended up voting against on that one. So just throwing that out there because uh, he has certainly done that before, but this is largely, yeah, coming from those from those federal funds that were uh, passed in that infrastructure bill a couple of years ago years ago yeah uh that's uh, been a pattern around the country with republican congressmen uh taking credit for projects in their districts even though they voted against uh the bills um and uh yeah, i mean you do wonder about the the long-term political ramifications here of uh of uh, not just this bill the the infrastructure bill uh, but then also uh, the the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has put uh, created a lot of uh, projects, uh, energy projects, um, out in red districts, and then also the Chips Act, uh, the Chips and Science Act, which is uh, has uh, really energized uh, factory building um, across again in, in a lot of uh, red districts. I mean, will Joe Biden uh, get credit for this stuff ever? Um, or, or do we live in such a, a polarized or negative polar, uh, partisanship era in which you know, you're sort of just trained to, to really uh, despise the, the person in the other party that um, it won't uh, change any minds, all of this money and, and all these good jobs. Um, but um, politics is, is about the margins, and so you, you only need to peel off a few percent in some of these districts, and, and you can really... Uh, uh, change the, the political landscape. And one more story to briefly touch on you before we're out of time, and that has to do with the controversy with Nasri Warsami. Now, you might remember this name as he was someone who was previously in the news after his supporters instigated a fight at a DFL local endorsing convention. And, well, he's in the news again for inviting a controversial former Somali warlord to be his guest speaker at a campaign fundraiser back in June. 
the late Mohamed Farah Adi, just to give you a little background, was a key player in the 1990 coup in Somalia, in which their government collapsed later in 1992. And now his son, Hussein Farah Adi, spoke at a fundraiser for Warsame, who is a DFL candidate running against city, running against an incumbent city council member. So I'm curious, first off, uh, why exactly was this guy invited to a fundraiser? And what exactly did he say at this event? Because I understand this is a very controversial speaker that was invited to speak at Warsame's fundraiser. Yeah, uh, Warsame is already... Um has uh, been a, uh, I mean, he's run afoul of the, of the DFL, uh, where there this uh, kind of fracas started, uh, started uh, his supporters started at the DFL endorsing convention. Um, he was essentially banned from getting the uh, DFL endorsement, and now he has this uh, guy speak at a, uh, a fundraiser for him. Um, we don't know what was said, uh, but uh, the this, the individual with the fundraiser is the son of a, a key player in the in the 1990 coup, um, which after which Somalia's government collapsed. Uh, he's the he's the son and um, and sort of the heir, and um, so I think it certainly raised some questions about uh, why you would want to be associated uh, with this figure for your campaign in the, the sixth ward. You can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, or about Warsami and the controversial speaker at his event back in June, as we are just about out of time, as we have been speaking with Patrick Hulican, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Again, at minnesotareformer.com. Make sure you sign up for their newsletter and get all the latest news and politics here in Minnesota. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.